We do have a new chart today, but I don't want you to be distracted by it. So you don't get it yet. I do want to say, though, with all these charts, but especially this one, my goodness, especially this one, even if you have the hard copy, and you know they're printed just as well as we can, uh, it would it would be to your advantage to download the PDF as well because these are all high resolution. You can zoom in and fill, the, fill your screen with just one little image and you can see details that are just really hard to see in the printed copy. So uh, I recommend that. Okay, I am the last person to be teaching Greek grammar and to your benefit, I seldom make the attempt. But it's important today, as we open up this pivotal scene, revealed immediately after the seventh trumpet is sounded, that we understand the verb tense often used in this passage, and not just here, but throughout the upcoming parenthetical visions and even throughout God's Word as a whole. It's used uh, all over the place. It's important that we understand it. The verb tense I'm referring to is the proleptic aorist. Proleptic or prophetic aorist. The English word prolepsis, proleptic is the adjective form, prolepsis means the treating of a future event as if it had already happened. The treating of a future event as if it already happened. And this is used in God's Word to express absolute certainty that in the event happening, God's Word, whoever is writing, whether it's John or anyone else, when they use this, they're saying, this is so certain, so solid, we might as well say it's already happened. And we see that three times in our passage today. And, but another example is in Romans 8. Let's go back and look at that. Romans chapter 8. Let's read verses 29 to 30. Who's got it? Well, now I gave it to somebody. Patty, is it you? Renee? All right, I'll read it. Oh, that's what it says. (laughs) Oh, we're off to a good start. (laughs) I should tell you, Dave and Bonnie, that since you left, I've lost my mind. Yeah, I've, I'm, I'm approaching your state of life. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's, that's, we need a sub. Okay, 29 to 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined 
to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, of course, there is a positional glorification. We are glorified when we receive Christ positionally. But there will come a moment in time, as we see in the eschaton, that we are glorified for real, practically uh, glorified. Verse 30 presents a series of verbs that describes the steps in salvation. There are more, but these are the three included. The first three, predestination, calling, and justification, have already been accomplished in the life of a believer. A believer. But the final glorification is yet in the future. It could be 30 minutes from now, but it's in the future. And certainly in the future from when this was written in the first century. In English, we would use a verb such as, He also will glorify. It will happen looking toward the day when we stand before him in our actual glorified bodies. But the Greek includes the fascinating proleptic aorist verb tense, which permits the writer a way to express the concrete surety of God's salvation process, so sure that it can be expressed as if it has already occurred. He also glorified. It's done. Now, back to Revelation 11. In the passage before us, I count at least three occurrences of this aorist verb tense being used. And I want to look at just one of them before we dig into the text. Look at verse 15. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever, has become. We are presently at the sounding of the seventh trumpet in the tribulation. Has the kingdom of the world already become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ? No. But the certainty of Christ's reign is so absolute it can be expressed as if it, is already, it already has taken place. We can also understand this as expressing the perception of God. And, and in my mind, this carries more weight even than what I've been saying about, okay, it's so sure that it, it's as if it's already happened. To me, this is even stronger. This is expressing the perception of God or of all heaven. From that vantage point, as one writer has pictured it, one does not just see the float or marching band passing directly in front of the viewing stand, but one sees the entire parade from beginning to end at one glance. You're in the blimp. 
one can see, quotes, see the end as if it has already passed by. Keeping this in mind will help us better understand the meaning and placement of upcoming events. We're now at a point in these last things where from heaven's perspective, the events of the eschaton are drawing to a close. From our perspective, there remains much of the parade to pass before us. But the Godhead, its archangels and run-of-the-mill angels, as well as we can assume myriad throngs of heaven-dwelling saints like us are so eagerly anticipating the consummation of it all with the return of Christ and His eternal reign that their attention is fixed on the parade's end. They're already rejoicing in the consummation of it all. But admittedly, this can make it confusing for us. We're reading and we say, well, wait a minute, this is past tense. Has it, did I miss something? So that's why we need to understand this use. And I'll try to point it out whenever it occurs. We saw their perspective expressed back in chapter 10 in the episode with the angel with the little book. Revelation 10, 5-7. Then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it and the earth and the things in it and the sea and the things in it, that there will be delay no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, that's where we're at right now, the voice of the seventh angel. When he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished. There's the proleptic aorist right there. Is finished. Well, it, we got a lot further to go, but they're saying in chapter 10, is finished. We'll soon be addressing a collection of parenthetical visions and events that are presented roughly around the midpoint of the tribulation. As I've stated before, I do not intend to force all of these into tight adherence to that three and one half year mark. We'll see right off that they span time frames far beyond the immediate narrative, shifting back and forth, overlapping each other, and retracing steps already taken. Right off the bat, we'll see the birth of Christ. It's clear from Scripture, however, that the midpoint does indeed mark an important pivot point in God's economy of the final days. For example, Daniel's prophecy split the 70th week, that is, the last seven years of his 70 years, 70 weeks, 490 years. It's been a while, but do you remember the, how we, that all works out? Daniel's 70 weeks, 490 years. In two, 
He split the 70th week in two in Daniel 9.27. And he, that is Antichrist, will make a firm covenant with the many, that is Israel, for one week, seven years. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So Daniel's prophecy splits the week in half. When John was told to measure the temple, he was informed that the nations, that is Gentiles, will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. That was in 11 verse 2. In the recent episode with two witnesses, we saw the tribulation split in half. They would prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. 11.3. Perhaps the most important, the midpoint, perhaps most important, the midpoint marks the revealing of Antichrist's true character, which is evil incarnate. Literally, Christ is holiness in flesh, incarnate. Antichrist is Satan in flesh. Up to that point, his public career has been one of general political agreeableness. And everyone knows you can't trust a politician. And for the most part, benevolent wisdom and power. But after three and one half years into the tribulation, the beast will will renege on his agreement with Israel take over the temple, establish it as his personal throne, have his second in command, the beast from the earth, the false prophet, erect and bring to life a statue in his honor in the temple, an idol that all are to worship as God under threat of death. That's in chapter 13. So, let's hand out the chart now. And if we can see chart 15, please. This is the chart for the series of parenthetical visions we'll be looking at now that occur right after. They occur right away when the seventh trumpet sounds. Or as God's Word puts it, when the seventh angel sounds. So we'll be using this for the next few sessions. The seventh trumpet is the doorway opening onto the very final chapter of God's plan for men. The end of rebellion, the end of sin, the end of evil, ultimately the end of this earth's system and everything familiar to us. The seventh trumpet is the gateway to eternal light and righteousness, a new earth and new heavens, and an intimate, tangible relationship with God and Christ Jesus on that new earth. 
I am forever stunned by the biblical truth that when it's all over and done with, when we are, not, when we are finally in our eternal state, the way we are going to be for eternity with God, where is it? On earth. I don't think we can yet comprehend how gracious and condescending our God is. He doesn't make us come to His house. He comes to our house. I, I, it's amazing. J.A. Sice writes this about this moment. We here approach the grand climacteric of this world and of judgment work of the Almighty One. The seventh angel restrains so long from ushering in the final scenes which separate us from the glorious world to come at length pours out his wondrous blast. And if there is anything in all the round of human thought to absorb, fix, and intensify interest and attention, we have it in this subject. So let's read the first portion of our passage, verses 15 to 17 of chapter 11. And the seventh angel sounded, and there arose loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who art and who wast, because thou hast taken thy great power and hast begun to reign. Ah, you're still using the original NASB. (laughs) Wast. Verse 15. Then the seventh angel sounded. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Revealing its importance, there's an immediate response in heaven to the sounding of the final trumpet. A full chorus, a a symphony of the angelic and redeemed voices cries out in abandoned praise of Father God and the Son. This praise also declares the inauguration of the long-awaited answer to the prayer Jesus gave as a model prayer to His disciples. From Matthew 6, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This inaugurates that. Another answered prayer. He even answers Jesus' prayers. In the better manuscripts, the word kingdom is singular rather than the plural of the King James versions. Kingdoms. Some say the difference between the two is insignificant, but I, I don't agree. The plural kingdoms suggests God's victory over the multitudinous kingships scattered around the globe. True, absolutely true. 
It's true enough, but that doesn't quite capture the more profound depth of this thought. Whether or not it is acknowledged, there is only one king and only one kingdom of this world. Since Eden, there has been only one ruler over it all, Satan. Jesus confirmed this more than once. For example, John 12, 31. Now, judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. John fourteen thirty. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. His, Satan's kingdom, will be the one once and for all time defeated expunged and replaced by the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Done. One note here. I I have from time to time pointed out how, especially in the Revelation, God the Father and God the Son often become synonymous. Did you catch the pronoun, pronoun that follows that last line? the new kingdom will be, quote, of our Lord and of His Christ. Both. Yet the following pronoun is singular. He will reign forever and ever. Verse 16, And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God. Personally, I look forward to the day when free of the dark influence of evil on this earth, which clouds and diffuses our adoration, as earnest as we can be, we still live in a fallen world. We will, like the elders and the four creatures who are nearest to the throne, worship the Lord God unabashedly, unfiltered. These 24 men, so holy, they occupy seats immediately surrounding the throne of God. These 24 elders are within arm's reach of Almighty God on His throne. Aside from the four beasts, they are the closest physically, to Almighty God. They leave those honored seats to fall down prostrate, their faces to the floor in worship. And in verse 17, we have the content of their worship. But parenthetically, my impression of the 24 elders, whoever they are, there's all kinds of theories and opinions on who the 24 elders are. For the moment, it doesn't really matter. My impression of these 24 elders is that they are the worship leaders of heaven. You see in this apocalyptic book that they are the ones down front, closest to the throne, supplying the words of praise and worship and prompting the rest of the congregation to a higher adoration. That's the definition of a worship leader. Prompting the congregation to worship. These 24 are the ones showing the rest of us how to do it. 
Verse 17, we have the words of the praise. Saying, we give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. Here in their praise and thanksgiving is expressed the ultimate goal and purpose of all things. The purpose of creation itself. Until now, God's power has not been fully voiced. Some of it has been held in check as His forbearance and grace have been in the fore. And yes, He's gotten mad at times. But now nothing is held back. Now is the time for His full power. First, the fullness of His wrath against evil, followed by the fullness of His sovereign rule over all. To be expressed both against and in behalf of His creation. All this is detailed in verses 18 to 19. Here, however, is also announced as if it's already occurred, because in the perception of God Almighty it has, the fulfillment of the prophecy of Psalm 2. Psalm 2, go ahead and turn to that if you like. Psalm 2 is married to this passage, to this passage in chapter 11. 11 is an answer to the prophecy of Psalm 2, specifically 4 to 12. There's no superscription, but we're confident this was written by King David. Let me begin reading at verse 4, and I'll try to tip you off to who's speaking because it can get a little confusing at times. It begins with David speaking, it's his prophecy about Yahweh. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them, that is, the kings of the earth. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, now it's Yahweh speaking to Messiah, his son. But as for me, Yahweh, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He, Yahweh, said to me, Messiah, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, close quotes, and now it's David speaking again. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. 
So in this second psalm is the prophecy about what's about to happen in our passage in Revelation. It's played out. It's answered. And I would go on to say the book of Revelation forces us out of our self-centered perspective in which it seems as if God's very existence is for our salvation and pleasant eternity. We wouldn't say that out loud. And if, we for, and if forced, we, wouldn't, we would deny it. Oh no, I don't, no, 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 no. It's all for His glory. We say the right words. We know all the church words. But part of the fallenness of this earth, part of living even as a Christian, where reality is clouded by evil, is that we believe ourselves to be the center of the universe. He did it all for us. We think of that when we think of His love. And He does love us. Of course He does. He did, it, he did do it for us. God so loved But we are not the center of God's universe. He is. His power, His glory, His holiness, Messiah, they are the center. And of course we are not. We know that. But we don't always think or live that truth. The center of this universe, the one who holds it all together, Colossians 1, 16-17, great passage, is Messiah, Christ Jesus. He made it and He holds it together. It's as if this whole universe, Jesus is out there keeping it from being chaos. Keeping it from blowing up. He is about to take His rightful place upon the throne as King of all things, not least of a new kingdom on earth during the millennium. A kingdom extended as well into a new earth. And this is the content of the 24 elders' praise. Let's read the next two verses. 11, 18 to 19. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your saints and those who reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and earthquake and great hailstorm. <laughs> God. God says, here I am. In verse 18, the 24 elders apparently have more to add to their thanksgiving and praise since all of our common versions but the King James, which doesn't show quotes, quotations at all, uh, include this verse in the quotation from verse 17. They, they change the format. Some of our versions have it in poetic form. Uh, the NASB does not. But all of them, except for the King James, close the quotes after verse 18. So this is included in what the 24 elders are saying, but verse 19 is not. 
And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came. And the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. First, let me point out that which is not obvious in the English of our common versions. In the NASB, the words translated enraged and wrath are the same word. The root is orge, O-R-G-E. We get the word orgy from it. And the word means anger, wrath, passion. The same word is being used to describe man's anger and God's righteous judgment. And John Walvoord makes an excellent point. Here's what he writes. The wrath of men is impotent. The wrath of God is omnipotent. The wrath of men is wicked. The wrath of God is holy. Hear the prophecy of Psalm 2 as well as that anticipated in Revelation 6, 15-17 is about is, is being or about to be fulfilled. Let's go back and look at that. Revelation 6. Verses 15 to 17. All right, uh, where's our mic? Asleep at the switch. Boy, you aren't going to get a tip today. He was just so buried in God's word, he just couldn't. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, Every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Uh, there again, there we, there we had it again. The per, uh, P, <laughs> I forgot the word already. <laughs> What was that? What's that strange Greek thing? Proleptic? Proleptic. Proleptic aorist, right. There, do you see that? In verse 17, And the day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? It's not by accident that the predominant culture of this earth prefers to think of a one-dimensional God and Christ if it bothers to think of them at all. They like to say, as they convince themselves, that God is love. God is love. And wouldn't dream of inflicting judgmental wrath on anyone. He's a nice guy. He loves if they conclude God is not love, well, then he does, simply doesn't exist. In other words, if God doesn't fit their template, well, then he doesn't exist. Their God is love, or not at all. By such means, man deludes himself that 
I'm okay, you're okay. We've got nothing to worry about. This culture also does not subscribe to the depravity of man. Popular thought dictates that people are essentially good. And if they're evil, that evil has been forced upon them by external forces. Donald Trump. It's always his fault. One would think that anyone still dwelling on this earth by the time of the seventh trumpet would have at last discarded these notions. But if so, why then are they enraged? Why are they not on their knees? Here on display is the truth of the depravity of man. By whatever perverse logic still remains in their brains, they believe it is still worth their time and energy to shake their fist at heaven and vent their rage against God. By now in the flow of time, that response is not just depraved, but utterly stupid and futile. The mountain is going to be falling on them. Yet we see it played out even so late as the last battle thrown together by Satan when he's released after the millennium. Christ has reigned on earth for 1,000 years. All that time Satan has been in prison, in the abyss, in the pit. Not the lake of fire, in jail. He hasn't been influencing the earth personally. And to our befuddlement, God says, okay, after the millennium, I'm going to let him out for a while. Maybe by the time we get there, we'll understand why. But he lets him out. What does he do? Goes to war. His minions have been gathering, ready to go. He gets out of prison. Okay, the general's here. Let's go get God. Right. How's that going to work out? Poosh, done. If we so chose to, we could fill multiple sessions of this study just reading all the passages that speak of the future day when God will judge unbelievers. God's Word is filled to overflowing with it. His judgment and His wrath, the wrath of even the Lamb, are a surety. It will happen. And that Jesus that this present culture thinks is all, He's just a flower child. He just loves. He's so sweet and loves. They're going to be really surprised. It's not just God's wrath. It's the wrath of the Lamb. And the verse continues, And the time came for the dead to be judged. I agree with MacArthur that the elders here are not referring to a specific judgment. During the final days, there are several resurrections, as we detailed in chart 5, with concomitant judgments and or rewards following. Some are for the saints, some are for unbelievers, some may be for both, depending on where you come down on that. Here I think the elders are just speaking generally. 
in reference to any and all future to them judgments. Jesus did much the same in John, uh, same thing in John 5. He said, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. He's not nailing down a specific judgment there. He's just saying this is going to happen for both. And the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, the small and the great. Our various versions organize and punctuate this phrase differently. Depending on where commas are placed, one could group these together under the one heading of believers or break it down into several subgroups. If so, bondservants, the prophets, all who declared God's truth, including the last two witnesses, saints, a common term in the Bible for referring to true believers, those who fear your name, the small and the great, I would say this is synonymous with saints, at least in a New Testament sense. For all these, judgment brings reward. If this scene postdates the rapture of the church, which we believe it does, then the reference here is to those who subsequently come to faith, receive Christ during the tribulation. Many will, many will die as a result. And then verse 18 closes, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. No doubt many unbelievers today, especially those who worship at the temple of Gaia, the earth goddess, would say that this refers to all who do not follow their false religion. We are the ones destroying the earth. But as God's Word says repeatedly, even He will destroy this earth and replace it with another so that can't be where this phrase is saying is is can't be what this phrase is saying. The word twice translated destroy here are two forms of the same root. Okay, here I go. Hang on. Diaptherai and diaptherontus from the root diaptero. Ta da. Hold your applause. The word can mean to destroy utterly, but is also used to express corruption, spoiling, decay, depravity, to rot thoroughly. Amen. But is uh, and this is how it's used here. This earth theoretically could have been a paradise in exquisite joy-filled harmony with its Creator. But sin entered in, and that possibility was destroyed. I doubt that I need to cite examples for anyone reading or hearing these words to substantiate the position that is, it is those rejecting God and His Christ who are spoiling this earth with their evil corruption and rot. Let me just offer the names of two cities to make the case. Portland, Oregon, 
and San Francisco, California. Back in the 70s and 80s, when I was 12 years old, these were my two favorite cities to visit. I loved Portland, this beautiful, green, lovely town. It was by a river. It's great. And San Francisco. There, there's no, there was no city like San Francisco. It was so interesting. Today, both of these have been reduced to rotting corpses, stinking from filth and overrun with destruction and crime and drugs by those who hate. Hate just about everything, but especially hate God. If God's bond servants are rewarded, these will be judged and found guilty and destroyed. They are the ones who corrupted the earth, and if they do not turn to Christ, they will be destroyed. Verse 19. Supposedly, verse 19 is in John's voice. The, the quotation has been closed. John is the observer and chronicler of the revelation rather than the voices of the 24 elders. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened. And the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. When Jesus died upon the cross, the veil of the temple, the veil that separated man from God's mercy seat atop the ark of the covenant, was torn in two by God himself, top to bottom. Now man, any person, without priest or advocate save for Christ Jesus himself, could approach God directly and receive mercy and forgiveness. We can approach the mercy seat. And here, gloriously revealed to John from the heavenly temple of God, is the ark of his covenant. His promise to man. His promise of atonement in Christ. Yet remember, as the rest of the verse reminds us, that that same ark in history served as a potent weapon for harm upon the enemies of God. 1 Samuel 5. Even those who loved Him but disobeyed His law. 2 Samuel 6, 6-7. Remember that? They're moving the cart. The ark shook. They put their hands on it to steady it, to save it. Dead. The ark represents God's mercy shown to man. The flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm, they represent His power and righteous wrath. Exodus twenty eighteen to 19 Israel said, You go talk to God, Moses. He scares us, and we don't want to do that. You do it. You're getting the big bucks. You do it. And this last, His wrath is about to be poured out without mercy upon the remaining enemies of God.
Father, help us to digest all of this. You have sent us your translator, your helper, and we call upon him to help us understand these mysterious, dramatic events. Give us to the wisdom through him to learn it as you wrote it. Your truth, not ours. In Jesus' name, amen.